This was quite a different kind of fighting to Gallipoli, and one was liable to stop something any minute. Had a pretty rough time of it, what with whiz-bangs, H-E, shrapnel, 5.9s, and so we did not know which way to turn, and at nighttime it was always worse, for Fritz put them over thick and fast, and the marvelous part of it all was that more did not get hit, for bits were flying everywhere. Private William Holford, 1st Anzac Corps, Rosier, the Somme, 1916. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast episode 15, the song, Enter the Australians. So I just want to get it out there right now that with this episode, we are veering off the chronological path of the Battle of the Somme a little bit. Reason being that ending the last episode at Delville Wood means that the next major action to take place on the Somme were the attacks at High Wood starting on the 20th of July. But I thought it'd be cool to look at the Besanton Ridge fights from right, left, and then center. You know, like playing this cool, edgy-like. I'm kidding. I messed up the timeline. Just straight up fact. I said I would do Posier next. Here we are. But it is good to get out of the woods for a little bit. With that, let's get into the wide open expanse and gentle slope of Pozier Ridge on the very left of Bazanton Ridge. Because after the taking of Ovier to the southwest and Contomaison to the south, the battle lines had plowed, scooped, burned, and scoured their way to about 1,300 yards away from Pozier village. Pozier Ridge's importance is due to it being, quote, an extraordinarily fine defensive position, dominating the whole of the approach up 1,200 yards of valley, which gently rose to the village of Pozier itself, end quote, as described in William Philpott's Bloody Victory. To attack from the southwest, the direction of the just-captured Ovier, was suicidal. Hosea Ridge's capture would put British and Dominion troops on the high ground for the first time with an ability to look down into the German-held areas to the north. From the ridge, the British would also have the high ground over the neighboring Tiepval Ridge to the north, thus adding more urgency and importance to its capture. With the capture of Pozier, the British 4th Army's flank on Bazenton Ridge could be secured, and the path to outflanking Tiepval opened. The village itself sat astride the Albert-Bapaume Road, which had originally been built by the Romans. A portion of the village stuck out from the road like a thumb pointing northwest. Bozier had been turned into a concrete fortress by the Germans, and from the village they could overlook both sausage 
and mash valleys. At the southern end of the village was a German Panzerturm, or armored turret, really a concrete observation post fitted with machine guns. This blockhouse was named Gibraltar on British maps, and it looks straight into Mash Valley. The German second line ran behind Pozier, coming from bazintan la grande to the west, towards Mouquet Farm, northeast of the village. Along this line sat the Pozier windmill, which sat on the crest of Pozier Ridge, which was also known as Hill 160. To the east-northeast of Pozier were two trench lines bisecting the Bapaum Road in a northwest-southeast direction. These were known as OG1 and OG2, the OG standing for Old German. Not, sadly, original gangster. These lines were meant to break up any potential attack on Pozier by means of enfilade fire. By the time of the 14th of July attacks directed by General Sir Henry Rawlinson, the village itself had already been battered apart by heavy shelling. Pozier and Pozier Ridge were supposed to have been taken on the 1st of July, but obviously, that hadn't happened. Nevertheless, British Forces Commander General Sir Douglas Haig considered Pozier the key to the area surrounding it, and it was accordingly placed on the target list for the second major strike on the Somme. On the 14th, Tommies of the 34th Division advanced on the village after the previous day's bombardments in patrols, but were driven back by heavy machine gun fire. The next day, the 8th East Lancashires hit the village after a solid one-hour smashing by the artillery. The Lancashire Tommies had 1,300 yards of no-man's land to cross and made it to about 300 yards from the village before heavy fire sent them to ground. A second attack later in the day led to only a little more ground gained, but the men did dig in where they were in order to consolidate. This pattern of attacks repeated itself over the next few days. In order for the British army to keep on line with the French to the south, Haig made the decision to continue pushing towards the east rather than pushing northeast towards Bapaume. So the left flank of the 4th Army had to shift in order to stick with Fayol's 6th French Army and the reserve army shifted its right flank to cover down on the Pozier sector between the 18th and the 19th of July. The reserve army had had an ever-evolving role in the Somme battle since the 1st of July. Created in late May 1916 as the proposed exploitation unit for the intended breakthrough in Picardy, the reserve army had seen its role change from the tip of the sword to that of a shield. With the failures of the majority of the attacks north of Fricourt on July 1st, reserve army had been assigned to hold a line from La Boisselle to About Turn, Ebutin to the French, and make new attacks. When that wasn't possible, 
the reserve army was told to conduct active trench warfare and continuously stress the German lines. But now, with its taking over of the Pozier sector, reserve army was going to be tasked with action. This suited the reserve army's commander, General Sir Hubert Goff, very well. At 44, Goff was the youngest field army commander in the BEF. He was also a cavalryman by military trade and known for his aggressive spirit. He was always about pushing forward, attacking, maybe like Mangin at Verdun, but without the psychosis. This attitude put him in Haig's spotlight. Goff's generals and privates didn't take such a rosy view to their army commander, and they saw him more as General Sir Henry Rawlinson did, as a man of, quote, who rushed tactics and no reserves, as they are not sound, end quote. Goff would now be on Raleigh's left, with his troops pushing on Pozier Ridge. Events were in motion. On the 17th of July, the 1st Anzac Corps was assigned to the Reserve Army. The diggers had arrived on the Somme. Consisting of the 1st, 2nd, and 4th Australian Divisions, the 1st Anzac Corps was made up of a solid portion of Gallipoli veterans and largely by new recruits. Already, the Anzacs had made a name for themselves at Gallipoli most notably for the stories like that of men fist fighting over the chance to get a spot on the trench fire step so they could blaze away at the oncoming Turks. These men were diggers, as they were called from the history at Gallipoli and even well before that. And they brought with them not only the will to get after it on the Western Front, but an egalitarian ethos and a budding sense of national identity separate from that of the British Empire. This identity would only grow with what the first Anzac Corps was about to experience on Pozier Ridge. Commanding that corps was Lieutenant General Sir William Birdwood, known as Birdie by his men. A veteran of the British Army in India, Birdwood had never commanded anything like the corps he was assigned to in 1915. But he served at Gallipoli and came through it with his career intact. His troops loved him, and thus Haig disliked him for it. Because of course, if your men liked you, then obviously you must be some sort of snowflake leader. Birdwood took a lighter approach to leadership, including even leaving the day-to-day -day command tasks up to his number two, Brigadier General Brudenell White. Preparation for the next attack on Pozier and its ridge began on the 19th of July, when British artillery began a concerted effort at pounding the German positions in the area out of existence. The 1st Australian Division took over the frontline trenches during this time, such as they were in the lunar landscape of mud-filled shell holes. The attack was set for the next day, but 1st Australian's commander, Lieutenant General Walker, postponed it to allow for more familiarization with the ground. 
The assault was pushed back until the 23rd of July, when it would incidentally coincide with other attacks to take place from Pozier to High Wood to the east. Over the next two days, raids would be made on the OG trench lines, but these were ill-equipped and met with no success. At all times, the shells came down on Pozier village, the ridge itself, and the ruined windmill on the ridge's highest point. It was all part of the greater artillery battle that was relentlessly churning the Somme battlefield. The attack plan for the 23rd was as follows. The artillery was to make three lifts through Pozier village throughout the attack. First, at zero dark 28, the artillery would blast Pozier Trench and the OG lines with hurricane fire for three minutes. Two minutes later, the 1st Australian Division would strike at Pozier from the southeast. The artillery would then lift 400 yards and pound the village itself for 30 minutes. Pozier Trench was to be seized in that time, and after that 30-minute period, the artillery would lift and put fire on the Roman road running through the village as the German outposts were attacked. Following another 30 minutes of blasting, the albert bapaume road, the artillery would aim 100 yards north of the village and put down a wall of fire to prevent German support from entering the village. The Australian gunners did their work slinging round after round after round at the gentle hump of Pozier Ridge with a, quote, terrific hail of shrapnel mixed with high explosive shell, end quote. One of those gunners showed that digger fighting spirit and then some. Close to zero hour, one Lieutenant Thurnell broke ranks with his crew and pushed his gun literally up the Roman road to a point some 400 yards away from Pozier itself. He then aimed it horizontally and began slamming shells into any visible German positions from the open. Thurnell and his crew fired over 100 shells into the village as the infantry left their trenches and began the attack. The Germans inside Pozier were so shocked at Thurnell's actions that they hardly replied. The good lieutenant later pulled his gun back without taking any casualties. At 30 minutes past midnight, the men of the 1st and 3rd Australian Brigades left their trenches and moved on Pozier, splitting the village between them. The British artillery had done such a job on the forward German positions that it was hard to recognize in the flat farmland where it were, they were supposed to be. First wave of men swept over where Pozier Trench had been as friendly shells slammed into the village just a few yards ahead. The earth rocked with the impacts. The Germans didn't just sit there and take it. As soon as the hurricane fire signaled the attack was coming, they launched their own firestorm of shells, a great red spot within the greater Jupiter of smoke and flame that was the Somme. The Australians of the first wave were largely untouched by this counter-barrage, but follow-on forces were caught in it as they rushed up through Blackwatch Alley to the southeast. The 1st Australian Brigade, on the very left of the attack front, did well. 
Its first wave cleared Pozier Trench with little resistance, and due to strong leadership, communication, and teamwork between battalion commanders, the men of the second wave passed through the first just as they were supposed to. At the southwest end of the village, the blockhouse dubbed Gibraltar on British trench maps was taken quickly by men of the 2nd Australian Battalion. Gibraltar itself was a three meter high block of concrete that stuck out clearly amidst the ruins and pitted ground. Captain Ernest Herod and a squad of men attacked the structure frontally while a Lieutenant Walter Waterhouse attacked from the rear. Rushing into the interior, one German inside was found with his finger on the trigger of his machine gun. Ironically, the Hanoverian unit manning it used the Rock of Gibraltar on their unit crest. On the brigade's left, however, the supporting 5th Warwickshires were unable to keep shoulder to shoulder with their Anzac comrades. On the right, the 3rd Australian Brigade had it harder, much harder. These troops had nearly a mile of shell-torn no-man's land to traverse, and flanking them on their right were the two OG trench lines. No artillery preparation had been made on the OG trenches, and coupling that with an uncoordinated and poorly led attack led to heavy casualties. The Germans poured machine gun fire and grenades into the oncoming ranks of Anzac men. The plowed state of the terrain confused men as to where the hell they were, and men of the first wave kept pushing on for the second objective in Pozier itself. They then ran into their own barrage. Groups of men reached the OG-1 trench where vicious fighting saw men savage each other with no mercy. It was at this time that a private John Leake up and rushed a German strong point. After tossing in grenades, he jumped into the position and bayoneted any German who got in his way. When his officer arrived, Leake was found wiping blood off his bayonet with his felt bush hat. Leake found himself to be a recipient of the Victoria Cross sometime later. As more men surged forward, Fighting in the OG-1 trench grew fiercer. The battle here came down to the struggle over junction points in the trenches, intersections where one trench joined another. If the trench still existed, you had to bomb your way through it, throwing grenades around the traverses and mopping up any resistance with quickly aimed pistol or rifle fire. A block in the trench, a wall of sandbags with enemy behind it that literally blocked the trench was another nightmare that had to be taken down in order to continue the advance. But the Anzacs were in OG-1 trench, holding on for dear life. An assault on OG-2 lost its way because the land where OG-2 was supposed to be had been plowed beyond recognition by the artillery. A German strongpoint in a communication trench connecting the OG trenches stopped any further attempts forward in that area, despite Victoria Crossworthy efforts by a Lieutenant Blackburn to capture it. By 1 a.m., Australian troops were making attacks on the albert Bapaume Road from inside the village, and by 3 a.m., both the 1st and 3rd Brigades began digging in. 
British artillery kept pounding north of the Bapalm Road, and the Germans were slamming shells into the oncoming Australian reserves. On the right flank, the Germans in the OG trenches were putting enfilading fires into the Anzacs. Casualties were soaring, particularly among officers. Nevertheless, the crucial work of consolidation had to get going. The Australians had a foothold inside Pozier, and it was due to the strenuous efforts of men like Captain Ferdinand Medcalf of 3rd Brigade that communication lifelines were maintained with battalion and brigade commands to the rear as the men up front dug in. Medcalf made himself a conduit for hastily scrawled messages that passed back and forth, keeping communication flowing in order for the lieutenant in a shell hole as well as the lieutenant colonel in a trench a few hundred shell-swept yards back to have as much information as possible. And just in time, because at 5.30 a.m., the Germans launched a counterattack against the Australians. The attack was thrown back. Reserves were moving up through the German counter-barrage to reinforce the newly won positions. There were gaps in between some of the battered battalions in the front line, and men were moved up as quickly as possible. The Australians pulled back some of their positions as their own artillery was coming in a bit too close, but it was observed that Pozier itself seemed to have been largely evacuated by the Germans. A few sniper teams remained in the ruins, meeting out quick death to anyone who carelessly exposed themselves. 23rd of July then passed fairly quietly in the front line. Of course, it was a calm before the coming storm. It was crazy enough that this lull had come about, although these things seemed to happen in combat. The 1st Australian Battalion reported that, quote, Sunday passed comparatively quietly. The line was not shelled very much and we spent the day consolidating the positions taken up in the attack. Much hard work was done, none of us dreaming the hell that was soon to burst upon us." End quote. Towards the evening, the British barrage lifted, and with the reserves now up front, the Anzacs pushed into Pozier. That night, diggers pushed about halfway through the village before friendly fire from outside the village stopped all movement, and there were casualties. On the right of the 1st Australian Division front, the 12th Australian Battalion entered Tramway Trench, part of an older trench system that followed a railway line out of the village. A deep dugout was found, and it was discovered there were Germans inside. They surrendered, and among them was a captain who stated he was the commander of the Pozier garrison, such as it was. Now here's something. This captain's name, was it a great German name like Gutz von Berlichingen or something like that? <laughs> no. When he gave his name, it was Ponsonby Lyons. His grandfather was English. Isn't that something? As the 24th of July dawned, much of Pozier 
was now in Australian hands. We're going to leave it at this point, with Australian troops consolidating the hold they had on the ruins of this little village. We'll be back very soon with the next episode, where we'll continue and finish the story of the Australians on Pozier Ridge. All right. Questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com or hit me up on the Twitter at at ww1podcast. You can also go through the website, firstworldwarpodcast.com or the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. A real quick word on consolidating a just captured trench line. There are several things you absolutely need. You will need good men, rifles, Lewis gun teams, plenty of ammunition, bombs for tossing, rolls and rolls of new wire, and iTunes reviews. Yes, you do. Says it right in the manuals of the time. I'm telling you, be it French, English, or German. Nothing builds a solid trench line like podcast reviews. So if you are enjoying the podcast and would like to contribute to it, please consider leaving a review on iTunes. Just leaving a starred review is a huge help to the show. If you have a moment and feel so inclined, please consider leaving a few of your thoughts on the show as well. Feedback is awesome. I really, really enjoy hearing from everyone out there. And if you would like to make a financial contribution towards keeping servers open or towards the purchasing of new research material, please visit firstworldwarpodcast.com. There's a PayPal button there that will let you make the donation of your choice. And I want to thank everyone who has donated recently. Thank you so much. As always, thank you so much as well for taking the time to listen to the BFWWP. Talk to you again soon. Take care.